Please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus 13, verses 17 through 22. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. That's a new microphone. That was a little loud. I'm excited to get back into the book of Exodus with you. And uh, before we do that, though, I have a Father's Day word on my heart. It's Father's Day, right? And uh, Father's Day is a happy day. It's a day of celebration for many of us, but it's also a hard day for some, right? And it's a hard day for many of reason for many reasons. A lot of us had dads who were absent in our lives. They never showed up. Some of us had dads who were not absent in their lives. They did show up, but when they showed up, what they did was often damaging or abusive rather than comforting and helpful. Others, I know from multiple people in our congregation, they've lost their fathers even within the last year. So Father Day can, Father's Day can be a time of grief and it can be a time of father wounds coming to the surface. This reminds me of what Romans 12 says, that as a body of Christ, as the family of God, we're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, right? And there's both of those things happening today. So for those, those who have father wounds, the, the word from Scripture that's just on my mind for you this morning is Psalm 68.5, which says, Father of the fatherless and defender of widows is God in his holy habitation. And what that means is this, is if you want to go to the holy of holies, the, the most sacred place where God dwells and where God reigns in his holiness, and you sneak in there and you ask the question, what is God like? The answer that comes from that holy place is God is the father of the fatherless. He's the defender of widows. In other words, we have a God who delights to show steadfast love. And to comfort and to protect and to guide and to guard those who don't have any earthly relationships doing that for them. Amen. So in that sense, that this is our God and that the love and the strength of this God is revealed to us most fully in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In that sense, knowing that God is the perfect father for all of us, we can truly say every one of us to one another, happy Father's Day. Because that is our heavenly father. For those of you in the room who are dads. I want to remind you this morning that being a dad is a high and holy calling. Um, one way to put it would be like this. If you mess up everything else in your life, but you do that well, you've done something good in your life. Something deeply and eternally significant. 
But sometimes that reality of the high and holy calling of fatherhood can itself feel a little paralyzing because all of us dads have failed in our dad duties from time to time. Amen. Every dad in the room said amen. Um, we have all failed in our fatherly duties. And I want to remind you this morning of two scriptures. One of them is in Second Corinthians when Paul, the apostle, was going through one of his great struggles and he cried out to God for help. Jesus appeared to him and said to him, my grace, everybody say grace, my grace is sufficient for you. God's grace is his undeserved kindness, love that he shows to us that we didn't deserve because we're sinners. Slaves for like 450 years, a long time. These people had been slaves. Their mamas had been slaves. Their grandmas had been slaves. They're to be internally liberated because they're struggling to trust God. And it turns out that Pharaoh still lives inside their head. Be internally liberated. I'm going to say more about this in a moment. But the literal physical stronghold of Pharaoh on their lives has been broken. But Pharaoh's still whispering to them inside of their heads. And they're living in fear rather than in faith. But the good news of this text is that even though sometimes freedom is frightening, in this text we're reading about a gracious God who is patiently guiding, guarding, encouraging, and instructing his people, even in the midst of their fear. The people are free, and they're scared, and they're honestly spiritually immature. They have been externally liberated, but they still need to be internally liberated. They're slaves psychologically and spiritually. And yet God is not being hard on them. In this text, we find a God who, with grace, is guiding them and guarding them, protecting them and instructing them and leading them in the way that they should go. Not only has he liberated them externally, but he is going to liberate them spiritually and internally. Now, this is a word before we go any further that I think all of us can feel the relevance of right now. Because if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you're free. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Y'all can finish this for me. If the Son has set you free, you are free. It's for freedom that you've been set free. You're free indeed if you've trusted in Jesus Christ. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. If you've trusted in Jesus, the Son of God, who died on the cross for your sins and rose again, then the good news of the gospel is you're forgiven. The burden of sin is not on your shoulders anymore. You're free from that. The burden of death and the fear of death is not a chain for you anymore. Jesus broke those chains. Not only that, but you don't have to live under the tyranny of Satan and sin. You remember what it was like before you knew Christ and you just couldn't help but do wrong, stupid, destructive stuff? But now you've got the Holy Spirit inside of you. And by the power of the Spirit, you don't have to live that way anymore. So in Christ, we are free. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, in Christ, you are free. And if you're thinking about trusting Jesus and getting baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that's, that's what you get. You get freedom in Christ. But there's a reality that freedom can still be scary sometimes. Freedom can still be scary. And the free people of God, we still have some battles to fight. We got some battles to fight that can be frightening. Not only that, but the promises of God are only halfway fulfilled in our lives, much like the children of Israel in this text. They have been brought out of slavery, but they are not yet in the promised land, and they got some battles to fight between the two. That's true for us, isn't it? Through Jesus Christ, we're free, but we're waiting for Jesus to come back. And until then, there's a whole lot of battles to fight. So we get scared. We get scared. And, and the good news of the gospel here today is that God is patiently, lovingly, gently 
speaking to us this word. You don't have to be a slave to fear because I am with you and I will fight with you and I will fight for you. In Christ, you can be strong. You can be brave. You are victorious in him. That's the message of the text. Now, before we go any further, I just want to pause and just just let you pray for a moment. I know that lots of everybody here is carrying burdens. I know about some of the burdens which are unbelievably heavy and other people here have burdens that I don't know about. So I just want to pause and give you a moment in your heart to just cast those on the shoulders of Jesus and say, Lord, uh, I'm weak, but you are strong and I need this word of the Lord this morning. Please speak to me. Your servant is listening. I'll trust. I'll obey whatever you say. Would you cry out to the Lord like that in your heart right now? And I'm going to say a prayer for us and lead us into some of the details of this text. Oh, holy God, this morning we need you. We need you. Lord, I'm deeply aware that what these, your children need, is definitely not a word from John Mark Hart. What they need is the same thing that I need. Lord, we need Jesus. We need the word of God. We need the Holy Spirit. So help us. Help me, Lord, to faithfully and accurately and humbly and boldly proclaim your word. Guide me by your spirit and help these saints. Lord, we know Satan wants to harden hearts. He wants to sow doubt and unbelief and fear, discouragement, distraction, division. So would you come and help us now to hear your word with faith, with understanding. Help us to walk in the freedom and in the boldness that is our birthright in Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray and all God's people said, amen. So here's the question I want us to ask. If, if God's people are free, but they're still scared in this text, how does God encourage them and instruct them? Because as we notice that, that's going to be encouraging and instructing for us, too, today. And the first thing that I want you to do is to, or that I want to point out to you, is that in verses 17 and 18, we see God patiently delaying Israel's first encounter with warfare because... Listen to this closely. Even though they are fully equipped for the battle, they don't know it yet. Even though they are fully equipped for the battle, they don't know it yet. And God knows that they will win if they win into the battle, but their faith is not ready, so he's going to patiently strengthen their faith. Let me show it to you in the text. First, look at the last three words of verse 18. Equipped for battle. Equipped for battle. Let's read that sentence. And the people of Israel went up from the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Everybody say equipped for battle. Now, biblical scholars for many years, for centuries actually, have been scratching their heads about what exactly does this mean? What does it mean to say that this group of slaves that got set free like 15 minutes ago is suddenly equipped to go into battle with, say, the strongest empire in the world? What could that mean? Well, some have speculated that it might have meant 
this, that you remember when the people got sent out after that tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, God instructed them to go to their neighbors, to the Egyptians, and to ask them for supplies for their journey. And it may be that the Egyptians actually gave them weapons and armor, which would be a huge miracle for these slave owners to say to their now freed slaves, here, let's arm you. I mean, just that doesn't sound like a great idea, does it? So that would be a miracle if that's what it means. And it could be that. After all, God's done lots of miracles in the Exodus so far. That's possible. I think it's probably more likely that this is a phrase that has kind of a double meaning. On one hand, it's probably referring literally to the fact that as they marched out, they were marching out in military ranks, lined up in groups of five or 50 like an army. So it's in one sense just a statement that they are walking out looking like an army. They're organized in military ranks. But there's this double meaning here. Not only are these former slaves who just got free walking out organized, orderly, following Moses, but they are also walking out with the Lord of hosts in their midst. And this Lord of hosts, he just dramatically won a 10-round fight with Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. And, and it was clear God could have won it in the first round, right? It could have been round one, two-second knockout. But God says specifically over and over, I am patiently, slowly beating up Moses, I mean beating up Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. I am patiently, slowly disclosing my power because I want the people of Israel and the people of Egypt and all the surrounding nations to know that I am the Lord. Because he's not just interested in the physical liberation, he's interested in the spiritual liberation that only comes when we worship God. But the point here is God is a mighty warrior. In Exodus, we have found that God is gracious, that God is gentle, that God is merciful. He's a God who sees people in their pain and has compassion. He's a God who hears the groaning of desperate people. He's a God who keeps his covenant, a faithful God, a God of steadfast love. And in addition to all those things, he's a mighty warrior. So everybody say, God is a warrior. And... You, they may be a group of slaves, but they're a group, group of slaves looking like an army as they march out, not only to the eyes of somebody that sees rank after rank after rank of hundreds of thousands of these Israelites, but also in truth and reality, because they're walking, walking out with the Lord of hosts in their midst, with the armies of angels on their side, which means if they walk out of here and they get into a fight with anybody, Egypt or any of the surrounding nations, God's people would win. They're equipped for battle. They have everything that they need. Hey, Christian, is that true of you? You're equipped for battle. You're equipped for battle. You've got the shield of faith, don't you? You've got the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. You're equipped for the battle. You've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. If we go into the battle trusting Christ, we're going to win. But sometimes we act like These people act, and like God knows they would have acted. Look now, we've seen this equipped for battle statement. Look back now at verse 17. What a contrast between reality and between self-perception for the people of Israel. God says they're equipped for battle, but in verse 17 we read, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines. Now, to go by way of the land of the Philistines would be the most direct route to the promised land. 
God's going to take them to the promised land, but he doesn't take them to the direct route. Why not? Why not? The next phrase tells us. He did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their mind when they see war and return to Egypt. What he's saying here is this. They are equipped for battle. God knows they're equipped for battle because he's with them. If they face battle, they're going to win. But they are at this point still spiritually, emotionally, psychologically weak. They're insecure. There is a disconnect from the reality of who they are and of who they believe themselves to be. In reality, they are the chosen people of God, equipped for victory. But in their self-perception, they are weak. And because of that, if they face the battle, God says they're going to get scared and they're going to run back to slavery. Now, we need to think about that, friends. We need to think about that. It would be easy for us to get judgmental here. It would be easy for us to get judgmental and say, how can they? They just saw all these plagues. They saw the power of God. How can they be so faithless? But that would be a mistake. Did your mama ever tell you that thing about if you point a finger at somebody, there's four more coming back at you? I always feel like it's three, actually, and one is pointing up. I don't know how you point. But Jesus said, don't judge us, you be judged. We, I think we need to look with compassion and empathy on these Israelites. Because here's the thing. They are vulnerable. They're vulnerable and they have been accustomed to servile compliance. Pharaoh has made their life plans. Pharaoh doesn't just put shackles on their wrists. He has put shackles in their brains. He's inside their head. He has given them their plans. He's given them their food. He has protected them from outside invaders on the condition that they submit to his boot of oppression. He's in their heads. As I thought about this situation this week, it made me think of many analogous situations, including that that some of us know firsthand from our own experience or from the experience of loved ones of those who have been in jail or in prison for a long period of time. It's hard to come out, isn't it? It's hard. And God's grace is sufficient to help us, but it's hard to make that transition for a lot of different reasons. Not only is there a lot of constant anxiety and fear and stress and violence in prison, which can have a take a toll on a heart and mind of a person, but also in prison, everything's structured. And now all of a sudden you get out and you've got to make decisions and it, it can be very paralyzing. But don't take my word for it. Joe Grapham is a psychologist and the chair of psychology at Deakin University. And his specialty is the process of reintegration of into society for prisoners who've been let out of prison after a long period of time. Let me read you a few sentences about this experience, which I think also a, a, much of this applies to the experience of the people of Israel in this text and to our experience as Christians. Listen to what he writes. By their nature, prisons are highly controlled environments with a strict routine. Despite the boredom inherent in the setting, it is common for prisoners to have become dependent on strict routines and rules. Depending on the length of their sentence, prisoners can experience a loss of life skills and knowledge of contemporary life. This, in turn, leads to even greater dependency and feelings. Let me turn my page. Feelings of isolation on release. Heightened anxiety is common among prisoners, including so-called gate fever 
which is the fear associated with exiting into an unknown future with few resources. That's the end of the quote. Now, for those of us members of our own congregation or friends or family members, those that we know in the community who have reintegrated into life from jail or prison, this should give us a lot of compassion, right? That's a hard journey. Those folks need resources. We need to help one another through that journey because it's really hard. But I also want you to notice this is this is what the children of Israel were experiencing. They had a lot of structure. They had a lot of support. They had three solid meals a day. They didn't have to make their decisions. And now all of a sudden they're kicked out there. They don't have a home to go to at the moment. There's all sorts of tribes of people trying to kill them, not just the Egyptians. Everybody would be happy to to kill or to re-enslave them. And who's to say the next master won't be worse than the one they just came from? Not only that, here's a really practical problem that we're going to read about in a few chapters. How are we going to feed all these people? We've got a massive host of men, women, and children. How are we going to give them water? How are we going to give them food? How are we going to give them shelter? This is scary. No wonder they're scared. And in the Christian life, sometimes I think we face this reality that Jesus sets us free, but sometimes the false security of sin is a little hard to leave, isn't it? Stuff that, the ways we learn to self-medicate our pain. Ways we learn to find security or purpose in life. Sometimes it's hard to leave that stuff behind. They're scared. But here's what should be amazing to us about verse 17. Look back one more time. God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led them around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. Here's what's amazing here. God knows if they would just trust me, they would win the fight. But they're not ready to trust me yet. So instead of leading them into something they're not ready for, God in his patience and compassion says, I'm going to have to teach them. I'm going to have to teach them. I'm going to be patient with them. I'm going to show them my power and grace and love over and over again. I'm going to give them a thousand reminders until they learn to trust me. Isn't God good, y'all? Isn't God good? That's what he does for them. He has taken care of their physical captivity. Now he's going to liberate them from their spiritual captivity by teaching them how to live by faith. God's going to use teaching aids. We've got some teachers in the room. And for the teachers in the room, sometimes you try and explain an abstract concept and it doesn't sink in. So then you come up with a visual aid, right? A manipulable, some illustration that helps. Well, God is a good teacher. So he gives them a few visual aids. The first visual aid we run into in verse 19, where we find a very powerful, visible reminder that God always keeps his promises. And he will bring them into the promised land. So everybody turn to your neighbor and say, God keeps his promises. Let's look at verse 19. What's the visual aid? Now, Moses took the bones of Joseph. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Now, what's that all about? If you remember the last part of the book of Genesis, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. We're reading from Exodus, the second book of the Bible. And in the last part of Genesis, we learn about Joseph. He was a man of faith, a man of integrity, a man of justice and mercy, a man who walked with God. And at the end of his life, 
He prophesied. Well, first, he became second in command to Pharaoh in Egypt. He became a very powerful man. That's how God's people, the Israelites, ended up in Egypt in the first place. But he prophesied and he told them that they weren't going to stay in Egypt forever. Let me read the prophecy to you. If you got your Bible, flip over to Genesis chapter 50. If you don't have it, you can just listen. I'll read it to you. I'm going to read you the last three verses of Genesis. Last three verses, Genesis 50, starting in verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. That was the end of the book of Genesis. Joseph, the man of faith, had said, Y'all going to live in Egypt for a long time, but one day God will keep his promise to bring you out of Egypt, to take you to the land of Canaan, to give you the promised land that he promised to my great-grandfather Abraham. It will happen. And when that happens, do not forget my bones. Because I want you to plant my bones in the promised land. Pick them up and take them with you. And for all those years, wherever that tomb of Joseph was, was a reminder to the people. And now Moses, the man of faith, takes the bones of Moses, uh, Joseph, man of faith, and he's carrying them in the midst of the people. And everybody's seeing, and they're saying, what is that? In the 16th century, John Calvin made a great comment on this verse when he said, The bones of Joseph, the man of faith, know how to preach. The bones of Joseph are preaching. And what are they saying? What are they saying to God's people? They're saying something like, I told y'all so. Really what they're saying is, God told y'all so. And if you consider the situation that they are in, God's promise has been halfway fulfilled. They have been set free from their slavery, but they're not in the promised land. And now the bones of Joseph, a nice visual aid here. This might not work in your class, teachers. But the bones of Joseph are preaching and they're saying, 450 years ago, I spoke to you the word of the Lord. This is not your home. And the same God who halfway fulfilled his promise now is going to finish his promise. You will dwell in the promised land. you got to learn to trust him. And then in the final verses, verses 20 through 22, we get another visual aid. This one's much more impressive visually. It's so impressive, I named the sermon after it. Cloud and fire. Everybody say cloud and fire. Look at verses 20 through 22. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them. Mm. Why don't they have to be scared? Is it because their situation isn't scary? No, the situation is scary. Anybody got some scary stuff going on in your life? If I had three hands, I would raise them. There's lots of scary stuff going on in life. But the reason they don't have to be scared is because the Lord went before them. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, God is with you. And not only did he go before them, but in his mercy, knowing their weakness, he gave them a visual reminder of his presence to guard and to guide. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud. Can you imagine that? you got to pretend to be a kid for a second and use your imagination, okay? You just got let out of slavery. You're out in the middle of nowhere now. And now all of a sudden you see this 
supernatural phenomenon, this pillar of cloud, some big old cloud that goes from the earth way up into the sky. And I don't know what it looks like, but it doesn't look like any other cloud we've ever seen before. It's a huge pillar of cloud. And, and it's clearly something supernatural. They've seen a lot of supernatural stuff over the last few months. They've seen all these plagues. And here's another one. And Moses, the man of God, comes out and says, that's God's presence going before you to guide you and to guard you. And then the sun goes down. Read what it says next. And by night, in a pillar of fire. So you're looking at that cloud, and you think, that's encouraging, but it's about to get dark. And the sun starts to go down, and the thing lights up. It's a blaze. It's a blaze. And they're all standing there. Only a few people at a time could see the bones of Joseph, but everybody could see the pillar of fire at night. Why is it there? It's a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. In other words, I don't take any time off of protecting you and guiding you and leading you. I'm with you in the day. I'm with you in the night. You don't have to be afraid. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Let's think about this for a second. Like us, the people of Israel were in a situation where they trusted God, sort of, and yet they were struggling. The word of God should have been enough. But God is a God of compassion who condescends to our weakness by grace. And God gives them a visible sign that goes together with his word to reassure them of his presence with them. We experience that still as Christians today, don't we? In the sign or sacrament of baptism, there's this visible picture of being washed and of dying and rising again. And with it comes the word of God. You died with Christ to your old way of life. You are alive with Christ. You're a new creation. Your sins have been washed away. You have the hope of resurrection. And then week after week after week, we've got that tangible, visible reminder, the bread and the cup that we go to for the Lord's table. And with the visible sign comes the word of Christ. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. God in his grace is meeting us where we are by day and by night. He is with us to protect us. He lights up, especially at night, because that's when we get scared. Not just my children, me too. Anybody else? Literally, but mostly metaphorically. <laughs> Anybody ever feel like you're stumbling around in the darkness in your life? Like you're stubbing your toe, you're bumping your head, you might fall into a pit. You're just stumbling around in the dark. It can be scary. But the text says, God sent a pillar of fire to lead them by night. This makes me think of Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my heart. Uh, light into my path, excuse me. When we trust in the word of God and meditate on it day and night, he gives us direction. He gives us hope. He gives us promises to cling to and commands to obey even in the darkest times of life. It makes me think also of John eight twelve, where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So when all else fails, when we're trying to apply the Bible into our life, but we're in a situation so messy and broken that we don't know what to do. What the word of God says is look at Jesus and there's an unfailing light for you in dark places. There you find grace and hope and direction. As we continue throughout the book of Exodus, the symbol of the cloud and the fire are going to recur in a way that comes to represent the mysterious, awe-inspiring holiness of God. God is a God of holy love and justice. He's a God of righteousness and peace. 
He calls us to practice righteousness and justice and peace. He teaches us how to do it. The cloud is going to become a symbol of the fact that if we want to gaze on the presence of God, that this cloud that's going to cover the mountain later when they get the law, this cloud is a, a reminder to us that whatever we have yet seen or heard or thought or understood about God, God is more than that. God's always bigger than what we've yet conceived. Now, we can know God because he's revealed himself to us, especially through Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, who discloses the Father towards us. But here's this reminder. Uh, the majesty and mystery of God are such that whatever we have thought of him yet, he's bigger than that. And there's these moments in the Christian life in which we're trying to walk by faith, and then all of a sudden we hit a hard time, or we hit a blessing, or we study our Bible, and we find out that God is bigger than we thought he was. And guess, guess what, friends? It's going to keep happening. Because the majesty and the mystery of God are inexhaustible. The fire is a symbol of God's holiness. We've already seen it in the burning bush. Remember, that's how this thing got started. Moses was out in the wilderness, and then a flame appears in this bush, but doesn't consume it. And we talked about the fact that Fire is a fitting symbol for God's holiness throughout the scripture because it attracts, but is also kind of dangerous because of the light and the color and the movement and the warmth. It attracts us. I had a tangible reminder of this myself last night because we cooked out in my backyard and our little fire pit. We cooked hot dogs, sausages, s'mores. It was a great time. But my little one and a half year old son, guess what? He was constantly making a beeline for it's beautiful. It moves. It's, it's light. It's, it's colorful. He wants to touch it, but we have to keep saying, no, 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 holding him back. Why? Because what's going to happen if he touches it? He's going to get burned. And in the book of Exodus, that's a symbol of God's holiness. God is beautiful. God is good. He's gracious. We're drawn to him. And yet because of our weakness and sin, we know that his holiness is threatening to consume me. I'm unworthy of God. I need God's mercy. Just like every other person. On the planet, I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and I deserve judgment. But what we find in Exodus and what we ultimately find in Jesus Christ is that the God of holiness is also a God of grace. He will burn up evil in the world, but if we trust in Jesus Christ, he'll forgive us our sins, and his holy presence won't become a fire that destroys us. It'll become a fire that purifies us, where everything ugly in us is burnt away. We become the holy children of God. Well, I'm almost done, but as we get ready to go to the Lord's table, I just want to take a second to make even more explicit for us than what we've been doing throughout the sermon, the profound relevance of this for our Christian experience today. Can I just share a few thoughts with you before we go to the Lord's table? As Christians, we are free, not because of anything we've done. Anybody obey the law until you got free? We're free by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, through faith in his name. We're free. And yet, freedom can be scary, and God knows freedom involves fighting some battles, right? The children of Israel are never going to get from this point to the promised land until they learn to trust God to fight with them as they fight some battles. And so, 1 Timothy 6.12 says to us, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You've got to fight the fight. So everybody turn to your neighbor and say, fight the fight. We're free in Christ, but there are battles involved in walking in and realizing our freedom. And those battles can be scary. Sometimes we turn back in fear. And when we turn back in fear, what we tend to do is to run back to the security of that which enslaved us before we knew Christ. We return to the same old sins, same old stuff that 
and the false saviors that made us feel good before we found Jesus. So we need to face the question, are we going to trust Jesus in the battle? Or are we going to run back to the bondage and captivity of sin? That's the question. Now, our text is a reminder to us that when we run back, does God give up on us? He's patient. He's gracious. He, he forgives us. But I want you to hear this strong and gracious word from the Lord. I have more freedom to give to you. I have more victory to give to you. There's more joy that can be yours. There's more power that can be yours. But for that, you need to learn to trust me to be with you and to fight for you in the midst of the battle. Don't run back to Egypt. Sin made us captive, but leaving our sin and idolatry can be scary. If I trusted in my career or my academic success or approval from people to make me feel secure before I found Jesus, then when I start feeling insecure, I might run back to that. But is that the path to freedom? That's slavery. If I trusted in lust or pornography, if I trusted in money, if I trusted in uh, medicating substances that help me forget my pain, whatever I trusted in, whatever I trusted in, when I feel insecure, there's a temptation, instead of fighting the battle for holiness, to run back. It is for freedom, freedom that Christ has set us free, so don't let yourself be made a slave to sin again. Not only that, but every aspect of God's mission involves fighting some battles. A second ago, Chauncey asked you to turn to the last pages of your bulletin in which you see our community mission there. And it says stuff like, we exist to glorify Jesus by sharing the gospel with lost people. That's evangelism. Everybody say evangelism. It says we exist to glorify Jesus by uh, training and equipping believers to reach maturity in Christ. Everybody say discipleship. It says we exist to glorify Jesus by bringing God's heart of love and justice and mercy and reconciliation into our community. Everybody say peacemaking. We'll go with that one. Say peacemaking. And it says we exist to send other teams to do this in hard places all over the world. Everybody say missions. Now, every one of those is a battle. Every one of those is a battle. Every one of those is going to be scary. It's one thing to want our friends and neighbors and family members and co-workers to know the hope of Jesus. But if I go share the gospel with them, they might reject me. It's one thing to want believers to reach their full potential as mature Christians. But if I commit to helping them along the way, to meeting with them, to reading the Bible with them, to praying them, to teaching them the basics of the faith, to opening my life to them, that's vulnerable. They might reject me. I might mess it up. It's going to take a lot of time. It's going to be a battle. What about the love and justice stuff, friends? The thing about pressing into dark places to bring the love and justice of God is that people will often celebrate those who do it after they're dead. But in the meantime, what you get is tremendous spiritual warfare, tremendous conflict. Missions is tremendous spiritual conflict. So the question facing us, friends, is are we content to say Jesus set me free and then to Never really walk in the freedom that is our birthright out of fear. Or do we want to say to Jesus right now, God, I, I'm filled with fear. I'm filled with doubt. I'm filled with struggle. But I say to you, bring the truth of who you are down into the core of who I am so that I will walk by faith instead of letting my fears control me. The truth is Jesus won't leave you in the fight. He won't leave you in the fight. The same son of God who died on the cross for you and rose again said after his resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go unto all nations making disciples. And then he says, I will be with you 
I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So everybody turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus is with you. He won't leave you in the fight. Now, I want to invite you to bow your head before we go to the Lord's table. And to pray, because I think that probably for all of us right now, there's some spiritual battles in and we might be tempted to run to what would feel most secure and what would feel most safe instead of running to Jesus. I know that's the case in my own daily life, and it might be true for many of us. So I just want to ask you in these moments of preparation before we go to the Lord's table to ask the Holy Spirit to help you. Help him to show you what you might be tempted to trust other than Jesus. Ask him to help you learn what is the Egypt you're tempted to return to. Ask him to give you courage to trust him in the middle of the fight. So you would not give in to apathy, but that you would walk in the fullness of the freedom of the children of God. Take a moment just to talk to God about it. Holy Spirit of God, we pray that you would come quickly to help us. You said in your word, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we need your help. Help us to trust your promises. Help us to believe the gospel. Help us to fight for holiness, to fight for mission. And also, help us to fight for community. Lord, when there's difficulty and division and pain, it's easy to give up. Or to start fighting with the weapons of the world instead of with the weapons of Christ. So help us to humbly trust in Jesus. Walk in humility, integrity, and the fear of the Lord. We want to walk in the freedom that is ours as children of God. So as we go to the Lord's table now, please forgive our sins. Fill us with the Spirit. And as the children of Israel looked on the bones of Joseph and on the pillar of cloud and fire and learn they could trust you slowly but surely i pray that as we look on the bread and the cup today and remember the promise of jesus you would teach us how to trust you it's in his precious name that we pray amen